Good morning, everyone. Please join me as we read from the Word of God, Acts 17, starting at verse 1, page 899 in the Pew Bible. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a, a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men, who have caused trouble all over the world, have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into the turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too agitating the crowd and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left the, with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Amen. Well, good morning again, everyone. When I was in Bible college, uh, we had chapel every day, and uh, one day we had a speaker come and as part of his testimony, uh, he, well, he, as part of his message, he gave us his testimony. I, I'm going to call this guy Joe. It's not his real name. Uh, and you'll understand why I'm not telling you his real name in a, in a minute. Uh, Joe grew up in the U.S. in like the 1960s and 1970s, which if you know anything about U.S. history, was a very tumultuous time between the Civil Rights Movement and the uh, uh, Vietnam War and Watergate and on and on and on and on. There were just a lot of things going on in the U.S. that made a lot of people really angry. And so this guy Joe grew up as a very angry young American. Not just angry, but violently angry. Joe was a big guy. He had a black belt in karate, and he had no problem getting into a fight. And so in his testimony, he told about one day when he was standing on a bridge looking at a river in a bad mood, and someone came up to him and tried to tell him about Jesus. And he grabbed him by the arm and threw him over the edge of the bridge. And then he went on with his testimony. I, I don't know what happened to that guy. I don't, I don't think he knew what happened to that guy. Becky has a friend who lives in our neighborhood, and she really cares about this friend. 
This friend is a very typical Canadian. She grew up in a, a household where people had mixed religious views. Her parent, one parent was Muslim, one parent was nominally Christian. And so they kept their religious views to themselves. They never taught it to their kids. And their kind of view on these things was, we kind of just tolerate everything, and we don't push any of this stuff on anybody. And so Becky has tried to share the gospel with his friend, and, and her response has been invariably, that's just so great that you have faith like that to help you with your life. Which of those is a better response to the gospel? Now, for sure, depending on how high that bridge was and how deep and fast the river was and how healthy that man was, Joe might have murdered that guy. That's a bad thing. So by default, our neighbor wins on that point. But in terms of being a response to the gospel, which one's better? They're actually the same response. One's just a whole lot nicer than the other one. Do you understand what I mean by that? For many of us, when we think about sharing the gospel and how people might respond, most of us tend to think how they're going to respond to us. How are they going to answer us? What are they going to do to us? How are they going to treat us? How are they going to think about us? That's what we think, isn't it? And that that reveals a really big misunderstanding in our hearts about what evangelism is with the nature of it. It shows us something that's lacking in our hearts as we think about evangelism. Today we're looking at a passage in Acts as we continue through this book where we're going to see Paul and Silas evangelize in two different towns. And as they do, these two different towns have very different responses to their evangelism. And so what we're going to do today is these these towns are given to us side by side and, and presented on purpose as a comparison, as a contrast to one another. We're going to look at the different response, responses that the people in these towns had, and particularly we're going to talk about what are they responding to? What are they responding to? As we look at this, it's going to help us to understand the nature of what evangelism and conversion and sharing the gospel is all about, and we're going to be able to answer the questions, our big question for today, what needs to be true of us in order to be effective evangelists? What needs to be true of us in order for us to share the gospel well, in order for us to be effective evangelists. So we're going to look at this passage. We're going to start with the first town, the town of Thessalonica, and see the first response, which is rejection. First response in Thessalonica is rejection. So last week we were looking at uh, chapter 16 of Acts, and we saw how God called Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke to Macedonia. They're in northern Greece. They spent some time in the city of Philippi, and a number of people turned to Jesus. But their their message of the gospel actually made a lot of people mad as well, and they ended up in jail. They were publicly beaten, thrown in jail. But God used even those circumstances to bring the jailer and his family, and possibly even some of the other prisoners, to faith in Jesus. We kind of ended there last week. We didn't talk about what happened after that. The fact that the next morning, the city officials said, okay, get get rid of them, they can can leave. And how Paul and Silas refused to leave. They said, no, we were treated illegally. We're Roman citizens. They had no right to do that to us without a trial. They can come and escort us out of prison and publicly apologize, and then we'll leave. They probably did that as a way of protecting the new Philippian Christians from having similar persecution at the hands of the government. They're going to think twice about treating Christians that way just because they feel like they can. They don't know 
that what they're doing is probably not, like it wasn't legal in that case and it probably won't be good for them to do it in the future. So they're, they're trying to think about how do we protect these new Christians. So Paul and Silas, though, they do leave after they're escorted out and apologized to. And they head down the road to the next big city, southwest, uh, called Thessalonica. They pass through a couple towns on the way and they end up in this big port city, Thessalonica. So we're in chapter 17, verse 1 now. This is what it says. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, <laughs> see, even I struggle with the name sometimes, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where, they were, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So in Philippi, when they were there, there wasn't a lot of Jewish people there. There wasn't a synagogue, but in Thessalonica, there is. And so they, they do what they, what they want to generally do, which is start off by going to the Jewish people who already love God's word, who already have the old, what we call the Old Testament, and say, let me show you from the Old Testament that you need to turn to Jesus. So they spend three weeks doing that in, the, in this town in Thessalonica. And they worked hard to show them what the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, say about Jesus. Look, look at verse 2 again. It says, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. I don't know if you, if you caught what it says in there. It says that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, that he explained and he proved to them about Jesus. You know, the word explain literally means he opened up the scriptures to them. He, he took it and said, look, let me show you what it says. The word proved literally means to set it in front of someone. You, you take the example, the evidence, and you say, here it is. Look at what this says. It points us to Jesus. He said, look, the Bible tells us that the Messiah has to suffer. The Messiah is going to rise again. It's right there in the scriptures. I'm telling you the Messiah came. His name is Jesus. And in verse 4, we, we get the beginning of the response, right? Verse 4 says, Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So some of the Jewish people from the synagogue put their faith in Jesus and are saved. Remember, there's also Gentiles who haven't converted to Judaism but are, are interested in, in the God of Israel and worship at the synagogue. A lot of them turn to, to Jesus as well. Some of the rich, important women in the city. It says they, they, they join Paul and Silas. They break away from the synagogue and start a church. Later on, uh, Paul writes some letters to this church in Thessalonica. The first one, 1 Thessalonians, tells us that most of the people who turned to Christ in that city were actually uh, the pagan Greeks, the pagan uh, Gentiles, people who didn't have anything to do with the God of the Bible before Paul came. But when Luke writes the story of Acts, he wants to really specifically focus in on how the Jews respond, and so we don't really get any of that in here. But, but we get this idea that he spends three weeks in the synagogue, he, he goes and continues his ministry to the Gentiles, and people are flooding in and, and getting to know Christ. And then verse 5 tells us what happens after that. So some of the Jews have believed, but verse 5 says, but other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. That's crazy. Like, just that sentence, it's amazing. Right? These Jewish people who are jealous of what's happening, they're, they're not just, you know, speaking out against Paul, trying to debate him and, and prove him wrong. 
They go to the marketplace and find like the ne'er-do-wells, the rabble, the people that are just not working because they're just rough characters, round them up and incite a riot in the city. They start burning things, like that's what a riot is, right? And flipping things over and causing violence. We're told that Paul and, and Barnabas, Paul and Sinus, Silas, <laughs> Paul and Silas, Paul and Silas and Timothy have been staying at a new convert's house named Jason in the city. So verse 5 continues, they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find him, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials. Now imagine how scary this would be for, for Jason and whoever else is in that house, right? You're in your home and this mob comes and breaks down your door and tears your house apart searching for Paul and Silas. But they, they're not there. So they take you instead and whoever else is in the house and they drag you out. And they make false accusations against you to the city officials. They shout in verse 6, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. They're talking about Paul and Barnabas. Sorry, Paul and Silas. I'm having trouble with that. Paul and Silas. They said they're troublemakers. The word that they, they cause trouble all over the world is literally they've turned the world upside down, which is ironic coming from a rioting mob. But they go on in verse 7 and they say, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. He's shown hospitality to these troublemakers. And here's the accusation. They're defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. Now, the accusations here may be ironic coming from this rioting mob, but there's nothing funny about them. They're accusing Paul and Silas and all the new Christians by association of sedition against Rome. They're saying they're trying to cause a revolution against Caesar. They're saying that we shouldn't follow Caesar anymore. We should follow a different king named Jesus. They're twisting their words, right? This is a crime punishable by the worst kind of death. And again, it's really ironic. It's ironic coming from Jewish people who are looking for a Messiah, and whose understanding of a Messiah is that he'd be a king who would overthrow the Romans, right? If you remember the story of Jesus, part of the reason that people rejected Jesus is because he said, I'm not that kind of king. I'm not here to do that. They didn't want anything to do with him. And when Paul and Silas are opening the scriptures and explaining it, what they're showing is that the Messiah had to suffer and then rise again. These Jewish people would have a really hard time believing in a Messiah who had been crucified by the Romans. That's not what their picture of a Messiah was at all. But because they don't like the message of Paul and Silas, they're twisting it. They're saying, this is what they're saying. They're, they're, they're trying to incite rebellion against the Romans. We would never do that. We're good citizens as we start this riot. So what, what's, what's going on here? What's the response of not all of, but most of the Thessalonian Jewish people? Well, it, it's rejection, Right? But here's the most important question. What is it that they're rejecting? What is their rejection aimed at? When we, we hear the story and what stands out to us the most is that they're so jealous of Paul and Silas that they start a riot to try and get rid of them. Right? It, it seems pretty clear that they're rejecting Paul and Silas. They go to great lengths to reject them. They gather up troublemakers and intentionally turn the city upside down. 
You know, as law-abiding, peaceful, polite Canadians, that's pretty unthinkable to us. But we need to understand that the riot isn't the actual rejection. The riot is a symptom of a deeper problem. What's going on here is they're, they're rejecting God's word. That's what they're really doing. You know, Paul and Silas, were, we're told in detail, took three weeks to reason with them from the Scriptures, to, to open the Scriptures up and, and prove to them, give them evidence of who Jesus was. When they respond, they're rejecting that teaching. They're rejecting what God's Word says. Right? These, are, these are Jewish people who, who say they honor the Scriptures. They're their Scriptures. Right? They're not showing them the New Testament, which hasn't been written yet. They're showing them the Jewish Scriptures. They say they honor those, but they're really they're just hypocrites. They don't really care about the truth because when those scriptures challenge the status quo too much, they're not willing to accept them. They reject them. They reject God's word and the Savior that it points to. So here, here's the truth about evangelism. Anyone, anytime someone hears the gospel and rejects it, more than rejecting a messenger, they're rejecting God's word. You don't have to start a riot or throw someone off a bridge to reject God's word. There are plenty of much more quiet, polite ways to do that. And so I think it's really important at this time that we take a moment to talk to anyone in this room who who isn't a Christian. I want to say to you that when it comes to knowing God, the Bible tells us there's no room for respectful neutrality. I, I, and I, well, let me, don't get me wrong, I'm certainly glad that if you're a Christian and you're here, you're not starting a riot or, or being violent. I mean, that's commendable, obviously. And maybe you're here just to be kind to your family. They want you to come, and so you come with them, and that's, that's commendable. Maybe you're here because you're interested in Jesus and you want to know more, and that's, that's incredible, that's amazing. Maybe you're here because your parents made you come. Well, fair enough. I hope this isn't terrible for you. But, but whoever you are, this, the message is saying this to you in the Bible today. If you're not a Christian, then ultimately there are two sides to this. There are those who love God's word and accept what it says about salvation through Jesus and those who reject God's word and the message of salvation through Jesus. You know, whether you're hostile or respectful, if you turn aside from God's word and God's son and God's love and God's salvation, you're going to miss out. Here's what the Bible points us to in Jesus. Here's the message of it. That your creator loves you. That he wants to embrace you. Your creator sees you as you are. And he loves you. And here's the thing. He doesn't love you the way the world defines love. So often... Our world talks about love as celebrating, embracing every part of you, even even if those things are are wrong, according to God's word. And if you can't celebrate and embrace who I am, then you're not my friend. You don't love me. You, You reject me. Well, God's love is different than that. God says, I I can love you and still reject certain things about you and still say those things are wrong. In fact, if I didn't do that, I, I wouldn't be loving. There are things about you that are, that are destructive and, and, and causing problems, and those need to change. God says, I, I want you to grow and to change, and I want you to be who I've designed you to be. 
God knows what is good and what is bad because, he, because good is defined by his character, by who he is. And so he sees every part of you, even the darkest corners of your heart. And he still loves you. And he sees where you're selfish and self-centered. He sees where you're unkind and, and harsh. Or, or alternatively, he sees where you're never unkind. You're always too gentle because you're just afraid to be truthful with people. He sees where you're angry, whether you're the kind of person that blows up or the kind of person who simmers, the kind of person who just speaks sarcastically and passive-aggressively. He sees the areas of your life where you're lazy or alternatively the areas of your life where you work too hard because your priorities are out of whack. He sees where you're lustful or judgmental or greedy or violent or hateful, all the things that you hide from others and try to ignore in yourself and pretend like they're not there. And above all of that, he sees your lack of faith in him, your lack of faith in the one who created you. He sees you rejecting his kingship over your life. That's actually the biggest sin that, that humans commit. It's the sin that leads to all the other bad stuff that I mentioned before. God sees all of that in every single one of us. He sees that in you and he loves you. He doesn't accept your sin. He doesn't celebrate it. He, he hates it, but he doesn't hate you. He, he loves you and he wants to forgive you. He sees the destruction that sin causes in your life and the lives of the people around you. And even beyond and above that, he knows how offensive that sin is to himself, to the creator of all things who is good, and by whom good is defined. He knows that each sin in our hearts is a crime against the purely good God who made us. It's a crime that separates us from him. But he wanted to forgive your sins, and that forgiveness cost him a lot. Because as God is good and just, he can't just Ignore sin. Sin requires consequences, punishment. And so God, his love, took that punishment on himself for you. That's why the Messiah had to suffer and die and rise again, as Paul was saying. That God became human and lived among us perfectly and without sin. And then he took our punishment, dying on the cross and experiencing on the cross not just the agony of crucifixion, but the torment of hell for our sins. When Jesus died in our place, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again to life, showing that he had defeated sin and death. The death couldn't hold him. So the message is that by putting our trust in him, our sins are credited to Jesus for him to pay for. And his righteousness, his perfect goodness is credited to us for us to receive the reward of that. The message of the Bible is that your sins can be forgiven by your creator who loves you, but it's not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's about a transformed life. God doesn't forgive you and then move on and forget you. He takes up residence in you. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in you and starts transforming you, so you're not just forgiven, but you're changed. Your character becomes more like God's character. It doesn't happen right away, but slowly throughout your life, and he fills your hearts over time with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. 
That is what's offered to you in Jesus. And that's what you miss out on if you reject God's word and the good news of salvation through Jesus that it contains. So if you're here or you're watching online and you are not a Christian, you say, well, everything that you just said, I'm not on board with that 100%. Please, please don't miss out on that. Please don't reject God's word. Turn to him and believe in him and you will have the love of your creator bringing forgiveness and change into your hearts. Christians, if evangelism is ultimately about whether people are going to accept or reject God's word, do you feel sorrow over people who reject the message of salvation found in God's word? Does it, does it break your heart when that happens? Or are you reasonably unaffected as long as they're polite to you? I don't have to tell you that one of the trends we're seeing in our society is a growing hostility to the teaching of God's word. People aren't just apathetic to it anymore. They're growing more and more aggressive against it. And I think many of us Christians would be a lot more happy if they would just go back to being apathetic and polite. We just want to be rejected politely if it's going to happen. That shows something about our hearts, though, doesn't it? It shows that we're focused on ourselves. We need to remember they're not just rejecting us, they're rejecting God's word. They're rejecting the God who's revealed in his word and the Savior that it points us to. Polite people who reject God's word still miss out on, miss out on all the blessings of knowing Jesus of all the wisdom of knowing how to live as God's creation. Polite people who reject the word of God still go to hell. They reject the salvation revealed through Jesus in the Bible. That should bother us. So the first response we're seeing from the people in Thessalonica is largely rejection. The second response in the next town in Berea that we're going to see is going to be largely acceptance. Acceptance. So we've seen Jason and these other Christians are now in front of the authorities. They're being falsely accused. Verse 8 says, When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond, and they let them go. So the, the response to this situation is they say to Jason and other Christians, you're going to have to post a bond, which, which probably means you're going to give us a pledge of money that this won't happen again that these troublemakers they're talking about are going to leave and never come back. And if they do, we're going to just going to take everything. Right? We're going to take a larger sum of money and you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And so verse 10 tells us that as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Right? They sneak out to another town. They go to Berea and they start over, right? Verse 10 continues, on arriving there, they went into the Jewish synagogue, right? So they're doing the same thing they did before. But this time, something different happens. Look at verse 11. Now, the Berean Jews were of a more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with such great eagerness, sorry, with great eagerness, and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Verse 12, as a result, many of them believed as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So the Jewish people in this synagogue, by and large, they don't reject Paul and Silas' message. 
They don't grow jealous and start a riot. We're told they're more noble in character. They're not hypocrites like the people in Thessalonica were. Now, they don't accept it blindly either. What do they do? Unlike the Thessalonican Jewish people, excuse me, they don't just pay lip service to God's word, but they, they really do love it. They want to see, is this really true? Has this been hidden in God's word all this time and we didn't know it? So they want to know that God revealed in it. They want to know what it says. And so it says they studied it daily. They examine it with great eagerness. And as a result, many of them see, oh yeah, that is in there. And they turn to Christ and they're saved. They accept the message. And again, a large number of Gentiles were too. So as I said, the Bereans and the Thessalonians are set up as a comparison. There's a contrast. And as I said before, it's easy to be shocked at the riot that's caused in Thessalonica. But the comparison here isn't between rioters and polite people. The comparison is between people who respond differently to God's word. The Thessalonians rejected God's word and the Bereans accepted it. But what does that look like? We're told that they eagerly search God's word so that they can know God. Right? That, that's what their acceptance looks like. They're eagerly looking into God's word because they want to know the God that's revealed in it. And so there's a, there's a challenge for us here, right? The challenge is, who, who are you more like? Are you more like the Thessalonians? Sorry, the Thessalonians, excuse me, or the Bereans? Now, again, for our non-Christian friends who are here, if you don't have to understand and accept the gospel today if it doesn't make sense to you yet. You don't have to say, well, either I'm in or I'm out right now. The challenge here, though, is if you're not there yet, investigate it for yourself. Right? Jump into the Bible. Read what it says. See if this is true. And for our Christian friends who are here, our brothers and sisters, here's my question for you. I spent a long time describing the gospel just a moment ago in as much detail as I could figure out how to do in a reasonable way in this sermon. When I did that, what was your response? Did your eyes glaze over and be like, oh yeah, get to the stuff that I don't know yet? Does the good news sound like old news to you? If it does, then either I've done a really bad job preaching it, or your heart needs to be jump-started in its love for God's word and for his gospel again. The challenge this passage presents to us, it's not just for unbelievers, it's for believers as well. Are you more like the Thessalonians or the Bereans? Do you pay lip service to God's word, but you don't really let it change you let it change the way you live or how you see the world. Now, you may not say that's true. Hopefully no, no one who comes to our church would be like, yeah, yeah, that's me. I don't, I don't care. But whether or not you admit it, whether or not you're even aware of it, the other option presented in here is people who eagerly receive God's word, eagerly search it, say, is this, I, I want to know the God that's in here. They're looking into it for themselves. Right? I would love for people to come up to me and say, hey, last Sunday you said this. I'm trying to figure out, is that really what it says? And then we can talk about that, right? Don't just take what I say or what Aaron says or what anyone else says as face value. Look into God's word. 
study it because you love it, because you want to know God. Now, please, please do not take this as a guilt trip. Don't come away from this message hearing that good Christians are people who read the Bible a lot. Right? You aren't saved from your sins or loved by God because you read the Bible a lot or because of anything that you do. You're saved from your sins because of what, because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. His death and resurrection are enough to pay for our sins, even our sin of apathy to his word. But that's not an excuse to continue being apathetic to the Bible. It's a reason to run to God's word and to learn more about Jesus and what he's done for us and how we should live. You know, when, when Becky and I first started getting to know each other, Becky was in Scotland going to university to be a midwife. And so back 10 or so years ago, our main means of communication was through Facebook. We did a lot of Facebook messaging. Before, it was an app on your phone. It was more like an email thing on your computer. And Becky and I would send these long letters to each other almost every day. <clears throat> and I'll tell you something. I couldn't wait to get the next one every day. Just like refreshed and refreshed, hoping that it would come. I loved getting those letters from Becky. We would talk about just life and what was going on and learn about what mattered to her and how she saw God and things that God had been doing in her life and who her family was and who her friends were. They helped me get to know Becky. In a similar way, the Bible shows us who God is, right? The scriptures reveal the God who is love to us. They show us who he is and what matters to him and who we were created to be and how he has worked in history to save us from our sins. It should thrill us to get to read the Bible, to get to learn about it, to have someone open the, the word of God up to us and show us Jesus. That should be the most exciting thing that happens in our life. Now, now here's, here's the truth, right? Here's the other side of that. Reading the Bible is not easy, right? It's not a breezy novel that you can knock off in an afternoon, right? There are parts of it that are really, really, really hard to understand. But here's what you need to do right now. If you have even a spark of gratitude for the Bible in your heart, or even just a spark of conviction that you don't love the Bible enough, like that, that's God's spirit working in you, right? That little bit of feeling like, oh man, I don't love the Bible enough. That's, that's not, don't go down a trail of despair. Say, hey, that's God's spirit working in me, helping me realize I need to love the Bible more. And the only thing that you can do is to take that little spark to God and say, please build this up into a flame that engulfs my life. Hey, please, I need you to fan this flame and build into it. I can't pull myself up by the bootstraps and make myself love the Bible. I need you to help me to do that. Help me to see you in it. And then after you've prayed, start reading. Right? You don't have to jump into Ezekiel or First Chronicles or Revelation. Start with something easy. Start with the Gospel of Mark. Start read along with us in Acts. It's not going to change your heart right away, but the habit of praying for help and then reading the Bible and then and like writing down questions, right? What's something there that you don't understand? And going to somebody and talking to them about these questions, about the things that you're reading, chewing it over with somebody else, being part of a small group that's doing that. One of the things that I've been challenging that's been, I think, been helpful is when you get to the end of your passage, what's one little nugget that you can kind of chew on and suck on all day, right? One truth about who God is. 
One truth about who God's made you to be. One truth about the salvation that he's given to us. That you can just, I, you know, you read a chapter, you read two chapters, and you're like, well, there's a lot in there that I don't remember, but there's this one thing I'm just going to take with me today and try and focus on. God will flame that, or fan that flame of love in your heart so that you do love his word. And, and here's the deal. If you do that, if you grow in your love for God's word, you will grow in all areas of your life as a Christian. You'll grow in your knowledge of and your love for God. You'll grow in your character and in your morals. You'll grow in your ability to, ability to see where the worldview of our culture is at odds with God. You'll grow in wisdom and how to live your life. Now, one of the things, just as an aside on this, one of the things that strikes me in these passages we're looking at is how Paul and Silas respond to the persecution they face. They, they do something different in every town they go to, right? In Philippi, they're told, all right, you can sneak off and lick your wounds and we'll let you go and you're not in jail anymore. And they say, no, what you did was wrong. You come and face up to that. And then in Thessalonica, they do sneak out in the middle of the night. And in Berea, we're going to see the Thessalonian Jews follow them, cause a problem, and Paul has to sneak out again. But this time, it's not just not everyone leaving. Paul leaves Silas and Timothy behind. If you were to read again 1 Thessalonians, you'll see that Paul tries to go back to Thessalonica and realizes he can't. So he sends Timothy to go check on them and see how they're doing and build them up. Right? In each of these situations, it seems like what Paul's doing is following the wisdom of God to say, how do I best protect this new church here and not cause more problems for them? I make the government realize that what they did was wrong so that they don't face that. I just get out of there because my presence is causing these problems. Maybe some of us can go back, but I can't be there. He, he kind of follows different principles there. And it seems like what he's doing is he's, he's just following the leading of God in, in wisdom. Wisdom that I believe he would have learned by spending time in God's word. By walking with God and letting God shape his character through his word over time. And his, shape his mind and his heart through his word. So you grow in wisdom. But not only will you grow in all these areas if you love God's word. You'll also grow as an evangelist. So our, our big question that we started with was, what do we need to do? What needs to be true of us to be effective evangelists? And well, here's the answer. You need to have a heart of love for God's word if you're going to be an effective evangelist. You know, honestly, as scary as a riot is or as being thrown off a bridge sounds, for many of us, sharing the gospel with someone who's going to study the Bible and come back with questions is at least as, is at least as scary for us. I don't know how to answer their questions. Loving the Bible would help with that fear because, well, first of all, you'll, you'll know the Bible better, right? You'll be able to answer more questions. But also, even beyond that, it won't be scary for you. It'll be delightful to say, you know what? That's a great question. Let's find out together. Let's study it and see what we can find. But even beyond that, you can't share the gospel effectively out of duty or guilt. You just can't do it. You're not going to do it because you know it's your duty, because you feel guilty about it. You're not going to do it well, at least. It has to happen out of love. And now, sometimes the challenge to evangelize is framed this way that we need to love lost people more than we love our own comfort, right? And that's true. We do need to love lost people more than we love our own comfort. But we need to be careful how we define that love. 
Because we live in a culture, as we said before, where love is defined by affirmation and celebration. To challenge someone in their beliefs and actions is not seen as love, it's seen as hatred or enmity. You can't be my friend if you don't agree with me. How many times have we heard that phrase on the internet or just from people? But that's not how the Bible defines love. Let me, let me just show you three verses real quick. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It's not going to go along with things that are bad. It's going to say, this is what's true. Proverbs 27, verse 6. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. If all you're doing is telling people, yeah, you're great, you're wonderful, you're not, you don't love them, you're an enemy. Romans 12, verse 9 says, love must be sincere. What, is lo- what does sincere love look like? It continues, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. It's hard to love people in a way that hates what is evil, that's willing to wound a friend so they can rejoice in the truth. It's hard to love a polite neighbor enough to say, no, it's not just good for me that I have faith in Jesus. You need faith in Jesus too. This is the only truth that matters. It goes against our grain of our culture, the way we've been raised, the way we understand the world as good, polite Canadians. And so in order to love people like that, we first need to love God's word. 